Hi, and welcome to Why Do We Do That, a psychology podcast that deconstructs human behavior from the perspectives of social scientists, psychologists, and others that use applied psychology in their work. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Moyer. In this episode, I sat down with social psychologist Dr. Aaron Westgate to discuss the topic of boredom. Erin is an assistant professor of psychology at the University of Florida. She earned her PhD in social psychology from the University of Virginia. Erin's research broadly focuses on the conditions under which people enjoy or do not enjoy their own thoughts. She has extended that work to the larger question of why people become bored, developing a new model of boredom that explains what boredom is, why we experience it, and what happens when we do. One of my key takeaways from our conversation was that boredom is a really interesting topic of research and more complex than I would have initially thought. It's also a very accessible topic due to the fact that everyone experiences boredom on a weekly or possibly even a daily basis. And much like other emotions that we may be more familiar with, like joy, sadness, and anger, boredom is an important signal about our behavioral patterns. It seems that if we can focus more on what boredom is telling us instead of the negative feeling we are experiencing, we can actually use boredom to inform our decisions. Also, it was interesting to learn that there are multiple reasons for being bored, and that if we want to employ strategies to combat boredom, we need to make sure the strategy fits the particular type of boredom we are experiencing. I promise that you will not get bored listening to our chat about this line of research. Enjoy. Okay, I'm joined today by Aaron Westgate. Thank you so much for being on today. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Aaron researches a topic that I guess I have to say I am ironically very interested in, uh, which is the topic of boredom. Um, was uh, Was there anything in particular that drew you to the topic of boredom? So it's funny you ask, because I don't think anyone really grows up wanting to like be a boredom researcher. Like if you'd asked me when I was eight years old, I would have said like, oh, you know, I want to study sharks or I want to, you know, <laughs> be an astronaut. I wouldn't be like, wow, I want to grow up and study boredom. Right. And so I kind of got into the question by accident through this other research problem I was studying in grad school, uh, where we were trying to get people to sit and enjoy being alone with their own thoughts. And that the idea here is people lead these busy lives. We're all stressed out. Wouldn't it be great if we just had a few moments alone where we can sit and really relax and sort of go on like a mental vacation. And so we brought folks into the lab and tried to get people to do it. And the, the one problem with our idea is that it didn't work. Um, it turns out that people find this pretty boring. And in, even in one study, when we gave people the chance to like shock themselves, like 67% of men and 25% of women chose to shock themselves rather than sit and enjoy their thoughts. And when we asked them why, they mostly were like, well, you know, I was bored. And to your point, I got really interested in this question of not just like, why is thinking boring, but why is anything boring? Uh, what is boredom? Why do we experience it? What happens when we do? And 
And that question was just such an interesting puzzle to me because there really wasn't all that much in the scientific literature at this point. Uh, this was back, you know, 10, more than 10 years ago. I don't want to say <laughs> it's been a while. Um, and I realized that we didn't have great answers to those questions. And there's not a lot I love more than a, a good puzzle. So I got really interested in trying to provide a few more answers than we had to, to what is this boredom thing we all experience. So we're going to talk a lot about sort of the situational aspects, you know, that, that make people bored. Uh, but I, I did want to start by asking you about uh, individual differences in proneness to yeah. boredom, right? Because you can, like, it seems as though you can think of it as a state of being, like, I'm bored. But it, it almost seems more interesting to think of it as these types of people have a tendency to experience boredom more often than than these groups. Um, is it is it the case that there are certain groups of individuals that are more prone to boredom? It is. There is something called uh, boredom proneness. Surprise is the name of the measure, uh, which is basically the tendency for some people to be bored more easily or more often than others. And, you know, I'm sure I know I have friends who are like this. You probably have friends who are like this. You might be this person um, <laughs> who, whatever it is, it's just, you know, they, they can't sit still very long. They get bored easily. They're bored all the time, whatever it is. Um and there are some really great uh, researchers and research being done on that question of why some people sort of experience boredom in a way that is kind of different than the rest of us. Um, I've mostly been interested almost in the opposite question of like, yeah, absolutely, there are people that get bored more often, more easily than others. But sort of selfishly, uh, why do I get bored? Why do you get bored? Why do all of us experience boredom at times? And I, I do think the questions are linked because the things that are causing boredom in you or me are probably also what's causing boredom in those people who experience it more often or more easily. It's probably just ramped up in those people to some extent. So they're different questions, but they have at their core some of the same uh, answers I would, I would hazard. So in your work, you draw this distinction uh, that seems like a relatively new insight uh, that uh, boredom can be attributed to attention and also meaning. Why is this distinction important? Well, you know, something I like to say is that we can get bored for different reasons. And that matters because what we do when we're bored really depends on why we're bored to begin with. You know, if you're bored because you're doing something that's just too hard, um, you're not going to fix it by doing something that's meaningful if it's still going to be over-challenging to you, that you sort of have to understand. I always liken it to diseases. I actually, I always use this analogy before COVID and now everyone gets it that I'm like, you know, if you have the cold, the treatment for that is going to be different than if you have the flu or if you have COVID, uh, you know, as the case may be that understanding, even if symptoms are similar, understanding what the causes of those symptoms are, is going to help you ultimately not to sort of suppress those symptoms temporarily, like we can all take pain relievers, but if you really want the disease to go away, you have to address its core root causes. And that I think is why it's really important, even for folks who have no interest really scientifically in boredom to understand what's causing it because we all get bored and knowing a little bit more about why is gonna give us a better handle on how to address it when we do get bored and what we can do about it. Um, and you know, your, your point about meaning and attention is really interesting because 
our model is probably the first that brought them together, but people have been saying for years, um, for decades, especially in the case of attention, that boredom happens really reliably when people have too little going on. So some of the early boredom research, for instance, looked at air traffic controllers Mm -hmm. and air traffic control is a really interesting job because there's definitely moments of really high stress. There's also moments when you're just sitting there and absolutely nothing is happening for hours. And what they were finding as air traffic control was sort of coming online in the 50s, 60s as like sort of um, commercial aviation is starting up is that air traffic controllers would get bored and then they'd stop paying attention. Uh, to what's happening. And then you'd have plane crashes. And so there was a really, really vivid interest in these sort of attentional roots of boredom going back, you know, half a century. And it's just much more recently that people have sort of brought in the point like, yes, you can be bored because something is too easy, but you can also be bored because something is too hard, because that sort of paradoxically also makes it hard for us to pay attention, sustain attention in what we're doing. And you can be bored, as you said, um, because what you're doing just doesn't feel meaningful to you in the moment. Uh, Like I always say Sudoku puzzles are like that for me. Like I can do them, they're fine, but I'm like, they like confront me with the utter pointlessness of existence. I'm like, why am I spending my life doing this? What to me feels like meaningless thing. And as a result, I find them really boring, even though I have lots of friends that, that love them uh, because boredom is really this sort of signal to us of whether what you're doing in the moment is a good use of your time. And it's a way of sort of prompting you to maybe switch things up, do something differently or do something different when maybe it's not the best use of your time at the moment. I think we can all sort of, uh, make sense of the classic views of, of boring activities, kind of, uh, you know, menial rote sort of, you know, repetitive type of activities that don't engage a lot of thinking. Um, but it was interesting to hear in your work to read a little bit about these high arousal cases of boredom or boredom with tasks that are too difficult could you talk about those types of activities in a little bit more detail? Yeah. So this really goes back to a question about boredom, which has, has been there implicitly in the scientific literature for decades, which is if boredom is about being unable to pay attention, our colleagues in cognitive psychology know a ton about attention. And what they find is that we're able to establish and maintain attention on what we're doing when our cognitive resources, so you know your energy level, your skills, sort of everything you bring to the table, when that lines up with the cognitive demands that are being placed on you. And one way that those can be sort of a mismatch is sort of that classic boredom case where the demands are lower than your current resources. So you know, you're turning pegs on a table. You're uh, in one study, we actually have people do like simple addition. Like we had them add like one plus one or one mm-hmm. plus two for like 20 minutes. You know, this is way, way, way below most of our like cognitive resources. Right. It's hard to pay attention. We find it boring. Um, but the other place, theoretically, where we should find boredom, if our cognitive psych colleagues are correct, and they are wonderful, so I'm sure they are, is that we can also experience problems orienting and maintaining attention when cognitive demands exceed the resources we have available. And so this is sort of the case of overstimulation or, you know, just when something is too hard or too challenging for you. And again, the reason is that you you don't have that match that you really want them to be at the same level and too little or too much demand is both a problem for attention. And we know this from the attention literature, this has been known for decades. Uh, What had been established is that this can also mean that you can be 
if boredom is really about a failure of attention, that does mean theoretically you should be able to feel bored when something is too hard. And so we went to look for it and see if that was actually the case, that theoretically this should be there. Do we actually see evidence for it empirically? And when we bring folks into the lab, we find that we do, that when we give people this sort of air traffic control task and we ask them, you know, how was that? Was that just right for you? Was it too easy? Was it too hard? People are least bored when it's just right. And they are most bored when it's either way too easy or way too hard for them personally. And when we take difficult tasks that we know are kind of too challenging for people and we make them easier, people find them less boring as a result as well, uh-huh. which means that what we're really doing, again, is you're taking those demands and you're just pulling them down to the level that people are at. And you're making it, you know, that sort of like Goldilocks fit is really what it is. It's, I always say it's, it's, it's you know, this is too small. This one's too big. This one's just right. That boredom right. is about finding that just right moment. And I suspect most of us in our lives probably have more instances of things that are too easy than are too hard. And so those too easy cases might be more salient. Um, But at least in my personal life, when I think about things that are too hard, uh, so I'm not a cognitive psychologist, I'm not a neuroscientist. And I will sometimes, you know, be sitting in a talk and they're throwing up like, brain scans and talking about, you know, this, like part of the central something, something part of the brain. And I'm just like, okay, yeah, whatever, sure. Like this, this is not what I study. It's sort of above my, or Mm -hmm. too many numbers in a talk is something I joke about. Like, oh, that was all interesting. And then they just started talking about numbers all the the time. And I think we can all relate to this from school. I think most of us have been in a class at some point where the level that we're being taught at just sort of is like, I don't get this. Like, I don't understand what's going on. And when we, that happens, we see disengagement and we see boredom that we sort of mentally check out. And part of that mental checkout is that feeling of being bored in the process. And so it's, it's less common, I think in everyday life, but it is certainly still very possible and plausible um, and we see it at work too, that you can be bored at work due to both under challenge as well as sort of being chronically asked to do too much as well. So these these kind of cases of the task is too difficult. Um, I was I was wondering if since a lot of research has to kind of focus on asking people, uh, you know, how they feel and, and they report yeah. boredom. I'm curious if some individuals in, under these certain circumstances are saying they're bored when they don't actually have the proper language to express yeah. their true emotion, like they just don't have the language yeah. for it at all. Like in the same way that some people will say uh, they're uh, they're angry at another person for something yeah. they did, but an emotion researcher would say, well, no, they're sad. They're disappointed. They're not really angry. Um, I'm curious if, if there are some, uh, you know, instances where boredom is, is just being confused for other emotional states. It's an, it's an interesting question. And in some ways um, it goes right to sort of the central question in emotion research at the moment, which is what is an emotion and how do you measure it? And, you know, I I think what we've circled around a lot is that the gold standard and the thing that we validate everything else against is self-report. So, you know, if I can't trust you to tell me if you feel sad or if you feel angry, is do I really have a better way of knowing? And like, they're absolutely not to minimize the issues with self-report. There are all kinds of, there are entire literatures on the problems with self-report. But ultimately at the end of the day, 
they're the, the closest thing that we have to approximating what someone's subjective experience is. Now that said, it is absolutely something I worry about. So, you know, in like the study I mentioned where we brought folks in and we asked them, um, you know, to do this air traffic control task, tell us how difficult it was, tell us how bored you were. Uh, one problem with self-report is that you can sort of get the answer that you want by asking the question that leads to that answer, right? So if, you know, I like show you a video of like, you know, a funny video of someone like falling and hurting themselves. And then I say like, how sad did you feel while you were watching that video? You'd be like, oh no, I'm a bad person. I should say I'm sad, you know, because like <laughs> now that's what you're asking me about that you're- I'm definitely you have sad, this like, yes. Yeah, I'm definitely sad. I'm definitely but you are smiling at that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what, um, what we can do to try to get around that and what we've done, at least in our own work is ask people about a variety of emotions. So don't just ask them how bored they are, but also ask them, how anxious did you feel? How frustrated did you feel? So even if it's not occurring to people to sort of spontaneously label their feelings as one of those states, or at least prompting them to consider, like, is it possible you feel frustrated right now? Is it possible you feel sad right now? Is it possible you'll feel angry right now? And what happens when we do that is we find that people do say that they're bored in those sort of too hard over challenge situations, uh, but they also say they're frustrated. And I think that's the high arousal point that you were bringing up earlier is they sort of say they feel agitated, they feel frustrated, that it's a very different type of boredom experience from feeling bored because what you're doing is too easy. And I think if you talk to people in everyday life about our everyday experiences with being bored, that matches up that we we have this sense that there are different flavors of boredom that we experience. And they're not all that prototypical, oh, I don't have anything to do kind of feeling. And you know, I won't get into the, the details of it because it would be boring, but we can look sort of statistically at whether taking into account how you know, agitated people feel, how frustrated they feel, if that changes the link between boredom and difficulty. And what we find is that it doesn't, that what really seems to be happening is that yes, people are bored uh, and yes, people are frustrated and that they're sort of trying to reflect this sort of just uh, sort of composite mixed experience, that it's not just purely one, that we can have mixed emotional states and that case of over-challenge seems to be one of those cases that invokes a lot of emotions. Uh, so yes, people are bored, but that doesn't mean that they're not other things and feeling other things as well. Yeah. Yeah. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. I, it, it, when you think about it as you know, you're, you're, you're hypothetical of the talk, the academic talk, that's too difficult. I thought that was a perfect kind of example yeah. of, of, you know, this is, this isn't, I don't have, uh, this isn't a, a case of the task is so simple. I'm not challenged. It's your, you, you just can't process the information that's coming in. And even, and it seems as though you, it would pair kind of these negative overwhelmed types feeling of feelings with boredom. Like it, it, it it's both right. You're experiencing it, both at the same time. It is. And, and I think yeah. how exactly you feel about that boring talk kind of depends on what the talk is and right. how much you care in other ways too. You know, if I'm just sitting there and it's a guest speaker and it doesn't matter, I might be bored, but be like, okay, well, whatever. Um, you know, on the other hand, if it's, uh, a talk that has high stakes where I really need to like know what's being said and pay attention. And, you know, maybe you're a student in a class and you're going to be tested on it. Mm. Like, yeah, you might be bored, but you also might be frustrated and you might be angry that like, this is coming in at a level that's too hard because the, the stakes for that are higher. Right. Uh, so 
after thinking about this a little bit, I started uh, to think about trends in, in boredom in the sense, I'm sure we don't, we probably don't have a ton of data looking at boredom trends over the last 50 years. Maybe we do, but um, it, it got me thinking about, you know, 50 years ago, it seems as though uh, maybe more so in children than adults, but it seemed as though we had an environment that had a high likelihood of, of boredom. You know, you picture the uh, maybe some, some kids over the summer, and they don't know what they want to do, and and their parents weren't as uh, involved as they are today with their parent with their kids' activities. Yeah. So kids sit around, they get bored, and they're basically forced to kind of create their own entertainment. Which is, I'm basically describing sort of my upbringing. This is in the <laughs> in the you know late '80s, um, but today it is a fundamentally different landscape in the sense of when you look at children and they have, let's just say smartphones and games at their disposal, it almost feels as though boredom has been wiped away completely because there's always something that is almost 100% likely to grab your attention. I'm curious if, you know, how would you characterize changes in boredom over the last 50 years, is it just the case that boredom is now experienced differently rather than gone altogether? Um, you've, you hit on one of my dorkier wishes in life, which is to have a time machine. Mm-hmm. And because if I had a time machine, I know there are many important things you could do with it. But what I would do with it is go back in time and give people boredom questionnaires mm-hmm. because I really want to know the answer to this question. And it's an almost impossible question to answer. Right, right. Um, it's funny that your your sense is that boredom is decreasing because what we see most common in the literature is and the the literature here is very rocky. There, it's not it's not a clear answer is what I'm going to quickly tell you. Um But to the extent there is any answer, what we actually seem to see is some claims that boredom has increased in the past decade or two. Um, Like I said, this evidence isn't great. It's very, very small. It's based mostly on teenagers that like uh, the percentage of teenagers reporting that they were slightly more bored has increased by a very teeny tiny amount, like over the past 10, 15 years. We really don't have what I would love to have, which is a really good longitudinal data set that has followed the same people over time, looking at whether they've gotten more bored and being able to compare changes in age versus changes in year. Uh, We do find that people on average tend to be less bored as they get older, but because most of that data is coming from these cross-sectional data sets that's asking different people from year to year, We don't know if that's because we get less bored with age or if we are indeed getting sort of less bored over time. Uh, It's really nearly impossible to figure that out without the both pieces of data coming into the the question. Um, One one thing that I think is really interesting about boredom is if you look at the historical literature and folks that do like English and etymology and stuff, the word boredom itself is like fairly new. It didn't really exist in English until like the early 1800s, like late 1700s, early 1800s. It originally 
um, it comes from the word a bore, like you are a bore, Ryan. Um, <laughs> and it was used uh, mostly to sort of describe uh, sort of inseparable people in conversation who had just drone on and on and on. And it sort of got changed into a verb and a noun in the English language over time. But there's a, a decent amount of discussion in sort of um, historical and philosophical circles about this idea that boredom may be a modern phenomenon that it may be the case that, you know, 50 years ago, maybe we were more bored. But if you go back 500 years ago, did people really have, you know, time to be bored when they were worried about life or death or putting food on the table? And the answer is, we just don't know without that little time machine that I really, really want to have. Um, we don't know, you know, if, if working in the field in the 1500s and, you know, medieval Europe, whether those people felt bored, like, we would expect they might today, or if it was sort of a different landscape and you didn't have time to be bored. And so the question of whether people are more bored today or less bored today than they were, you know, 50 years ago, I, I think it's really hard to say. I think certainly there's a sense in which things like smartphones have reduced sort of boredom with a lowercase b. It can stave off temporary feelings of boredom. But I don't know that it reduces that sort of capital B boredom where you sort of wake up in the middle of the night and, you know, sort of that more existential kind of like, yeah, like in the moment I've been putting this off, but it's still there. And, you know, going back to our earlier point about really getting at the root causes of boredom, there are ways that you can stop feeling bored that will work temporarily as long as you keep them up, but aren't really permanent solutions. And so that boredom is going to keep popping up. So I, I, it's really hard to to compare, and well, I would especially because talk. yeah, especially because you know you drew the distinction between attention and meaning. I can see with the amount of technological distractions we have, you might see uh, you know less boredom in the sense that there are lots of distractions and things that grab your attention and engage your attention. But if you can also it, theoretically, oh, if you get caught up in all of these short-term solutions, you might not, you, you may begin to feel bored because of a lack of meaning, perhaps. Yeah. Um, and yeah. we, we don't have evidence for it yet, but this is actually something that my lab is looking at right now. And um, I always, I always call it sort of the junk food hypothesis. Like, is it possible that things like smartphones are kind of like junk food and that, you know, if you're hungry, junk food is great in the moment, but like, you're going to be even more hungry and it's not nutritious in the long run that you can't sustain a junk food diet. And whether that's also true exactly for the reason you just said about boredom, whether these things like, you know, um, I've recently gotten addicted to Instagram. Somehow I held out for many years and now I'm on Instagram all the time. Is that really a deeply meaningful use of my time? Probably not. Definitely not. Um, and is it possible that, you know, we only have 24 hours in a day and the hours I spend on Instagram are hours that I'm not engaging in other potentially more meaningful, uh, you know, activities that would really keep me from being bored in the future. And I think that is sort of the danger there that a lot of the things we know that are meaningful are also challenging and also hard. And so it can be easy to sort of offset and just do the thing that's easy. That's, you know, which is often for most people these days, smartphones. Um, but if doing that is keeping us from developing sort of those, those interests or those hobbies or those connections to other people, even that ask more of us, but are also more meaningful, 
then yeah, I think it does potentially increase the probability that, you know, you're suppressing the feelings, but not dealing with them. And we know if we know anything from work on emotions, like that is not a good long-term strategy. Yeah. You mentioned, so you mentioned a, a buzzword I wanted to talk to you about, which is addict addiction. You were addicted to Instagram or TikTok or something like that. Uh, I was listening to another interview with um, uh, Anna Lemke, uh, a psychiatrist, and she was talking about addiction. And she ha- was discussing uh, sort of how we experience pleasure and our culture is sort of saturated with these things that tend to spike our pleasure centers, uh, our, our dopamine. And so whether it's a substance like nicotine or alcohol, or it's, you know, something very attractive on our smartphones. And she mentioned that because all of these ways in which we seek pleasure, uh, they tend to spike our dopamine and then our levels of pleasure uh, sort of dip below the baseline after that, that the solution to you know breaking addictions with these things are to actually become more tolerant of boredom. And she was talking specifically about sort of the recovery community, people that 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 are abstain, you know, ideally abstaining from you know some hard substances. Could you talk a little bit about your thoughts on boredom as it relates to addiction and, 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 and perhaps, you know, is boredom, does it have some benefits that go along with, with experiencing those states? That's a really interesting point about the boredom tolerance. Um, I actually do have a little bit of work that we've even been doing about boredom and alcohol use and boredom and substance use. And there are links. I think what's been really tricky is figuring out to what extent is boredom causing these behaviors? To what extent is anticipation of boredom causing these behaviors? And I think that's where her point comes in really. It's like, you know, if you, you may or may not be right, but if you think that just sitting and watching TV is going to be boring and you don't want to feel that way. And you think that, you know, drinking is going to prevent you from feeling bored. You don't actually have to have the case that this is actually boring or that alcohol actually even prevents boredom. If you just have that set of beliefs, you are going to be more likely to drink to prevent this emotional state that you don't want to experience. And for that reason, because there's all this sort of convoluted like expectations, it's been really hard to unravel empirically how they're clearly related, but how they're related in this sort of causal chain has been harder to unravel. Um, I do think it's an important question and I'll, I'll talk a little. So this isn't published work. So, you know, bear that in mind. But we have this really interesting set of data in the lab that it's not about substance use, but I think it's related. So I'm going to come back to that. Um, what we find is there's this very, very widespread finding in general that the wealthier you are and the richer you are, the less likely you are to say that you're bored. If I like text you during everyday life, like if you're super rich, And I text you and I say, how bored are you right now? On average, you're going to say you're less bored than someone who is less wealthy. Uh, So in general, wealthier, richer people tend to be less bored. That's well known. Something really weird happens when we bring them into the lab, which is that when we bring them into the lab and we give them one of our standard boredom inductions, we find the opposite effect, that the wealthier you are, the more bored you report being during one of our lab studies. Mm. 
and the quicker you are to report that you're bored. And so what taken together we think is happening is exactly a tolerance issue that wealthier people experience less boredom in everyday life because they're living sort of quote unquote, more enriched lives. Uh, They have more control over what they're doing. They tend to have um, sort of more privileged jobs where they have more autonomy to do what they want to do. They certainly have the money to afford more leisure activities. They just have more control and more autonomy over their life, which means that they are less likely to be in situations where they're sort of stuck being bored. But that also means they have less experience being bored. And so when we bring them into the lab and we take away that autonomy, we take away that control and put them in that same boring experience that everyone else does, the people who have a lot of experience being bored, yeah, they're bored, but they're not bored as much as those wealthier, richer uh, participants who aren't used to experiencing it. And that's what we think is going on here, that we think it's a tolerance question that's born of experience, that if you have experience being bored, you've learned ways to tolerate it. But then when we bring you into the lab and sort of put you to the test, yes, you feel bored, uh, but you're not as bored and it's not as distressing as it is for someone who's not used to tolerating that feeling in their everyday life. And I think that's directly relevant to this question you have about what you do um, about boredom and substance use and the need to sort of be able to sit with being bored and not try to cover it up immediately that that is something that we seem to see some evidence for individual difference in. Uh, We haven't looked at whether that reflects downstream behavior, but I would be surprised if it didn't, considering that usually what we find with emotions is that if an emotion and a behavior is linked, then the more you're feeling that emotion, the more likely the behavior is. Um, So I, I think it's a really interesting question. And I think it's one which is probably right on the cutting edge of what we know but a really important one that we should be looking at more because I, I would be more surprised if we didn't see evidence for it than if we did. Okay, so I I want to get into some boredom solutions. Uh, you talk a little bit about this in, in uh, one of your papers. Um, you And you discuss that there are sort of different ways of, of dealing with boredom depending on, you know, the your abilities or your resources and depending on what the ultimate cause uh, of that boredom is. Um, let's just uh, let's just take one example uh, to start with. Uh, a lot of my students contact me saying that their readings can be boring. They, they're, they're, they don't have the attention to focus on their readings um, for, for class. Um, why don't we, you know, why don't you you lay the groundwork for some of these solutions for, for boredom? Yeah. So one of the things that I like to say is that figuring out what to do about boredom depends on why you're bored in the first place. And so if I was talking to one of your students, what I would say is, you know, well, talk to me, tell me, what is it that is making reading this textbook difficult for you? And say, for instance, they said, you know, I'm having trouble paying attention. Um, I'd probably follow up and be like, well, how come? Is there too much information on the page? Is it too easy? And people are are not always good at knowing. Sometimes it's hard for them to say. And so if they have a straightforward answer, like, yes, you know, he assigned a terrible textbook. It's just impossible to read. It has all this vocabulary I don't understand. Um, I'd probably say, great let's stop and get you an audiobook and see if we can make it a little bit easier. Let's see if we can bring down the challenge of the text to a level that is easier for you to process. Most people find audiobooks a little bit easier than written books in this kind of context. 
Um, also, what else is going on when you're reading? Like, are you like in a busy room? Are there external distractions that are adding to your cognitive load that we could also bring down? Maybe you need to be in a quiet library, uh, for instance, so that it's, um, you know, you don't have any competing demands on those resources. If your resources are already overtaxed by something that's really challenging and hard, the last thing we want to do is, you know, be adding additional demands on that beyond that thing that you're trying to do. And if it is the case that you just assigned this really hard textbook, that should hopefully help and it should fix it. And they should be like, oh, wow, now I can engage in it. It's still kind of challenging. And, you know, I might say, you know, maybe have a cup of coffee, maybe study first thing in the morning, pick a time when your resources are sort of at their best. You're not trying to do this, you know, at 11 p.m. at night after a long day, are you? And, you know, setting yourself up for success by maximizing the resources you bring to the table and making that task as easy as possible. Uh, so for instance, another thing I often advise students to do in that specific case is chunking, breaking it down into pieces. You know, don't try to read the whole chapter, try to read one section and then go do something else so that you're not trying to sustain attention for two hours, you're trying to sustain attention for 10 minutes, which is much easier for people to do. Um, but say that's not the problem. Say they're like, no, 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 like that's great. But the problem is that this textbook is really like, it treats me like an idiot. It's written at the level of like a kindergartner. And like, it's, it's way too easy. Like I just like lose track. Cause I'm just like, okay, obviously, you know, I get it. Um, again, you would then think about ways to increase the difficulty and the demand. So are there ways that you can make reading this text more challenging? So maybe setting yourself a time limit, like you instead want to try to see how much you can read in an hour. You maybe want to add some more external demands on your attention. Uh, people do this all the time with household chores, just spontaneously. People put on music, they call a friend, they do things that add additional sources of stimulation to this overly easy task. Uh, so in that case, if it is that the book is too easy, um, I'd be surprised, but it can be the case. Uh, maybe they already took this uh, class in high school and they're sort of going over it again. And they're like, I already know all this, right. so I'm not being challenged. Uh, finding ways to either build in challenge to what you're doing by adding sort of these um, little sort of challenges for yourself or adding additional distractions or even something, you know, again, you could use something like an audiobook and speed it up to three times so that you're really having to pay attention to... Right you know, basically making it harder for yourself. And video games have this idea down pat. Video games are almost all designed to scale at that really sweet spot where it's just hard enough to be challenging, but not so hard that it's too hard for you. Um, so if the problem is attention, great. We can modify your resources. We can modify your demands. You know, I, <laughs> I probably shouldn't say this, but anecdotally, sometimes when I've talked to um, graduate students and some faculty about, you know, this sort of too easy condition, some of them go like, oh, is that why sometimes I like drink while I'm grading? And I'm like, oh my God, don't tell me that. Sure. <laughs> but they're oh, like, I'm nice. bringing my resources down. I was like, yes, yes, no, I get it. I get it. But like, it's just wow. creative, creative multitasking. I think <laughs> yes, that's I, the technical term is creative <laughs> multitasking. Yeah. But like people do this, people, people kind of intuitively, uh, because boredom's a feedback mechanism you do things and you become less bored and then you kind of learn like wow that kind of works to reduce my boredom yeah. uh, people do do some kind of like zany things sometimes to to not be bored um, so so do you think do you think it's possible to manufacture interest 
in an activity. It's it's something I yeah. have been thinking about a lot. I'm very, very skeptical of this idea. Um, I was listening to an interview with William Shatner and he was talking about how, how you know, he's, he's just, he looks at objects and they fascinate him. They immediately <laughs> pique his curiosity. He's like, look, the, the window, it's, I mean, this is a hard substance that you can see through. And he has this sort of inherent curiosity that I, I definitely try to, to foster and cultivate, but I feel like it's night and day compared to somebody who is sort of already, you know, has the ability to be interested in just about anything. Uh, so what are your thoughts on on that strategy when you're doing activities that uh, when you have a high likelihood of experiencing boredom? Oh, I love that you bring that up because I, I think it really is a question ultimately about meaning. Um, so, you know, we were just talking about ways that you can sort of scale difficulty and stuff up and down, but it may be the case that that's, you know, you're looking at that window and you're like, oh my God, I don't want to look at this window for an hour. Or, you know, you're a student looking at this textbook and you don't have any trouble reading it. You just don't want to because you don't care about the class. You know, we've all been there. And I think ultimately that's a question of, is there a way to imbue meaning in a thing that you're doing if it's not kind of for you naturally already there? And it's, it's hard. I think there are things you can do to help. I don't want to make the claim and I wouldn't make the claim that you can go from like zero to a hundred interest in something by, by rethinking it. Um, one thing that we know does help from some research that Chris Holman and others have done at the University of Virginia is finding ways to make a topic more personally meaningful. Uh, and by personally meaningful here, I mean sort of selfishly, is there a way to take this thing you don't care about, like chemistry or physics uh, or a glass window and think about things that you do care about you know, so maybe it's um, auto repair. And can you find ways to link those two things together? So, oh, like actually glass is really important for auto repair because like glass breaks and I need to understand the structure of glass, you know, and like finding ways to build that link in a way. And this is the what makes it tricky is that in a way that it's genuine to you, where you genuinely sort of like buy the argument that you're making. Like, oh, I do need to understand physics to understand this other thing. And I always call this sort of the, the selfish solution to boredom because you're essentially trying to find something in this thing that you don't find interesting and selfishly find a way that it relates to you. And when it does, we find that meaningful because what we generally find is that we experience things as meaningful when they, we feel that they're sort of furthering us along the way to a valued goal that we have. And that means that you have to have something that you care about and you have to care about it a lot and you have to feel that this thing is sort of relevant to that. And one way we can do that, like I said, is by sort of selfishly finding links between things that I do care about and finding creative ways that feel genuine and authentic to ourselves to link it to these things that we don't care about. Um, I actually think this happens all the time in the context of relationships, that how many of us have had the experience of like not caring at all about some band or some topic. And then you start dating someone who is really into that. And like, all of a sudden you're like, Oh, like actually this is kind of interesting. And a little bit of it is performative, but I think a little bit of it is also genuine 
because this thing you don't care about is now suddenly linked to this thing or this person that you do care about. You've found a way to make it sort of personally relevant and personally meaningful. Um, the other approach to this that is really interesting is actually work on interest specifically by Paul Sylvia, who makes the case that sometimes things don't have meaning to us because we literally don't have the sort of cognitive framework for them to literally be meaningful. So he has these, these beautiful studies where you read this poem and the poem is absolute nonsense. It's not this really abstract modern poem. You have people read this. You're just like, how interesting was it? People are like, it wasn't. And like, how boring was it? And like, it was really boring. And what he finds is that if you give people some clues beforehand, so in one case, it's actually about like this shark that's like murdering sailors, <laughs> like at sea. If you're like, actually, before you read this poem, there's something you need to know. It's about a shark and it's killing people. Um, what he finds is that if you go into that poem with that context, it literally is giving a meaning to what you're experiencing. Right. So what used to just sort of be these sort of like, random abstract words that don't make any sense you're like oh this is actually a riveting story about like the death of all the sailors on the indianapolis and that context and that narrative framework and that meaning makes it much more interesting and i think that can come into play especially in cases where you know i gave the example earlier of being in like an academic talk that is boring to me because it's too high level um it may be the case, and it probably is, that to my colleagues who do that work, and that it's actually really meaningful, that what seems like a bunch of numbers to me is actually really interesting data that's telling them something new about the brain and the way the brain works. And that without that framework behind it, it's just noise. And they're seeing signal there where I'm seeing noise. And so in a really broad way, um, I think education and knowing about the world and specifically knowing about the things that you find boring can ironically make them more interesting. I, um, I, I tell this story sometimes where when I was in college, I visited the Florida Keys with my dad and we were in this like bookshop and this like tourist thing. And there was this book there that like this bookshop was very clearly like hyping. Like they were so excited about this book and it was like marine algae of the Caribbean. And I just remember looking at and being like, who in the world would be excited about this book? This is like the possibly the most boring book I've ever seen in the entire <laughs> universe. Like someone wrote this, someone photographed this and someone's going to buy it. And I don't understand any of those people. And it's ironic because, you know, fast forward 15 years and I would be totally interested in that book today because since <laughs> moving to Florida, I've become an avid diver. I'm super into like coral reef ecology and everything. And I'm like, oh my God, I've become one of those insufferably boring people my 20 year old self was like rolling my eyes at. Um, but of course what happened was that that book became personally relevant. It, I grew the sort of understanding and background information to appreciate the knowledge that was in it, which made it more meaningful. Um, and obviously those changes didn't happen in a day. That's, those are changes that happened for better or worse, maybe, I don't know, over the course of a, a decade and a half. But I do think they suggest that we can foster and grow interest in things that were previously boring to us if we have sort of the requisite background to make sense and make meaning of them and find ways to make them personally relevant. I think that the trouble with that is that those are all really hard things to do. Right. Right. Yeah, I, I, I agree. It's, it, it does seem sort of like an uphill battle. 
and sort of, you know, having thought about this topic, I think I've sort of settled on the fact that it's one of these things that are that are possible, but would require a lot of time and and sort of uh, you know fostering of curiosity over and over and over again before you can kind of settle down into a state where you can dial it in uh, for new it, tasks and things like that. Yeah, it is, and I you know I think one thing I'll I'll put in a plug for for you and me here. I think this is actually a point where teachers excel. I think this is like one of the things that we all try to do in our pedagogy and in our teaching is essentially persuade students that what we're teaching them is interesting. And a lot of the things that we do, you know, the examples we give, the the sort of cultural tie-ins we, we attempt to use, you know, they're all really ways of trying to have this ongoing sort of persuasion with our students that like, look, this is relevant to you. Look, you do care about this. Look, like it is meaningful. Like, don't you find it interesting, please? Um, and <laughs> I, I, yeah, I've definitely done a lot to uh, to help the medicine go down. You know, yeah. wrapping, wrapping the pill in peanut butter is is uh, is what you do with dogs, and then for for students, it tends to be the um, you know find a, a TV show or movie or game yeah. where where you get to see these concepts. Yeah, and and you know, I think the advantage that we have there over trying to do it for yourself is that we get repeated attempts. We we know the, the things that didn't work, and we we have the ability to sort of be like, oh, like this example really resonates with students, so we're going to keep on using that. So I I think it's something that maybe we can do for ourselves, but is that it's easier in some ways if someone else is there to help you do it for you, especially someone who's sort of been through, um, you know, been through the the uphill battle of trying to help people find something meaningful and interesting. So we've talked about a lot of different uh, scenarios with boredom, specifically related to tasks. You're doing boring tasks. You're in a boring situation. Uh, to close, uh, how about the boredom that you experience when you just don't have anything to do, yeah. right? So the, the, I've finished work, I'm on the, the couch boredom, right? Um, some of your work, you talk about activities that are good to switch to if you're bored, to try when you're bored. And, and also how sometimes when you you feel bored and you don't have anything to do, it can lead you down negative paths. So how about uh, we talk uh, to, to close, we end on some strategies for when you have this open schedule in front of you and you, and you feel sort of uh, choice paralysis, you don't know what to do. Yeah. You know, it, that's a really interesting question because I think it gets to a, I think, and I think that's where the point about boredom being partly about meaning becomes really important because there are lots of if it was just about attention, there are lots of things that you could just pick up and do like, oh, this is a good fit for my resources. Um, the, the problem of the sitting on the couch boredom, which resonates with me, I was the, the queen of this as a child, mom, I'm bored. Like, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want, you know, just rejecting the whole list of activities. Um, I think it's really a question of knowing what you want and knowing what you want to do and sitting there and not having anything seem immediately a yes to that question of like, yes, I want to do that. And if you think about what meaning is in the context of boredom, you know, we defined it earlier as this, this state of doing something that aligns with your valued goals. And I think that's really hard when sometimes you just don't really have any goals. 
uh, or you have goals, but you, you don't care about them. Uh, you know, like, yeah, of course I want to do well at work, but like what level of caring, maybe a one out of 10, you know, like it's, and so I, I think that's where boredom becomes a really interesting existential question, because I think it is a little bit of feedback if we take it seriously at saying like, okay, what does it mean that I don't even know what I want enough for something? You know, I don't think in that case, it's a case of just going down the list of finding something that resonates. I think the problem is larger than that. I think it's that we don't always have a clearly identified goal structure and set of values and direction, I think is one way to think about it, that if you don't know where you want to go, it's really hard to get anywhere. And that's not easy. That's people go to therapy for that. You know, that that's like, that's a, that's a big, you know, it's sort of, that is kind of the big question. Like what is, what is the point and what is, why am I here? And what do I want to do with this time that I have? And that can be a lot when you're, it's five o'clock and you just got home from work and you don't know, you know, you just want to be done for the moment. <laughs> well, uh, I can safely say this was a very interesting uh, discussion. I'm glad that you uh, took the time to come on and to discuss this this topic. Thank you so much, uh, Aaron Westgate. Thank you so much for having me. For more on Aaron, visit AaronWestgate.com. That's E-R-I-N-W-E-S-T-G-A-T-E.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please share an episode with two of your friends. Follow the Why Do We Do That Facebook page for updates and additional content. Don't forget to rate and write a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow on Instagram at Why Do We Do That Podcast or Twitter at WDWDTPod. As always, feel free to email me with comments or guest suggestions at why do we do that podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Dr. Ryan Moyer hoping you found some answers to the question, why do we do that? <laughs>